Welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm, which is our host site. And then, of course, if you're watching here on YouTube, please click that subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications. How much is left of the image of God in man after the fall? I think that's one of the most important questions that somebody could ask. It's actually been uh, kind of a, a central aspect of uh, the Christian study of theological anthropology, which is the theology of man. Another more basic way of saying that is the doctrine of man. This has been a central question in that particular locus of theology. And so what I would like to do is ask the question, what is left of the divine image following the fall of man? Now, some have answered this question in the extreme, uh, actually in one of two extremes. Uh, One extreme would say uh, that there's nothing of the divine image left in man uh, after the fall. And uh, that, of course, lends itself to all sorts of uh, problems. Uh, you know, if the image of God in man is what distinguishes man from beast, then if the image of God has been totally eradicated, man is no different than uh, any animal, which has implications for ethics and all sorts of, of things. And then uh, on the other hand, or the other extreme, some have said that the, the image of God is is really not affected by sin at all. It's it's not effaced by sin at all. And this would be more of your uh, Pelagian uh, views where a man is entirely capable of fulfilling the will of God and doing what God commands, and all man has to do is, is will it to be done, and he can do it. So he's relatively uh, unaffected by the effects of sin. Okay, so those are the two extremes. That's not what we want to chase. We're not going to chase any of those two extremes down uh, in this podcast. What I would like to do is look at a more positive conception of the image of God, uh, really looking at the Reformed Orthodox or confessional doctrine of the image of God in man post-fall. But before we do that, we really need to ask the question, well, on that conception— on that doctrine of the image of God in man, that is on the Orthodox Reform doctrine of the image of God in man, what is the image of God pre-fall? That is, let's look at the image of God uh, in very uh, general terms. Uh, Let's look at the image of God before the complication of sin enters the picture. And so we really just need to ask the question or begin by asking the question, in what consists the image of God in man. Now, I'm going to rearrange my windows here so that I can see more plainly. Um, now, I, I mentioned this earlier, uh, just just now, in fact, when I was looking at one of the extremes, when someone, if someone were to deny the image of God in man altogether as a result of the fall, uh, it would have ethical implications because man would be no greater than a beast, Uh, Man could therefore be treated, in theory, just like any beast could be treated, okay? So uh, there's really no ethical foundation for why a man would be treated any better than a cow. Um, If the image of God is what distinguishes humanity from not humanity, then it would seem conceivable uh, or theoretically correct that man could be treated like any other animal or any other beast. Um, 
And so one of the things that we need to lay down as a foundation or, or at the outset of this is the image of God in man is precisely what distinguishes man from beast. All right. So if, as the confession says, the image of God consists in man's knowledge, holiness, and righteousness, and I do believe that that's uh, that's the correct teaching, knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. That's Confession 4, Article 2. Uh, then, uh, you know, I think we need to understand the image of God as being that which distinguishes man from animals. Why? Because uh, the perfections that man participates in uh, that are also found in God— now, I'm not saying that they're found in God the same way they're found in man— God has them archetypically, man has them by way of participation, ectypically. Um, so the way in which um, the way in which man participates in these perfections is different. It's 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 by way of participation, uh, not by way of having them originally, archetypically, uh, and so on. But these perfections that man participates in, that are also found in God would be the intellect and the will. These are the twofold composition of the soul of man. Uh, the, these are the two uh, main principles uh, within man's soul, intellect and will. Um, and, <clears throat> and so th this is what essentially distinguishes man from beast. If, if you ask about anything else, you know, man has a body. Well, beasts have a body as well. Uh, man has a sensitive appetite. You know, he gets hungry. He has uh, sexual urges and things of that nature. Animals have all of those things as well. So none of those things particularly distinguish man from beast. What distinguishes man from animals is man's intellect and will. And it's predominantly in the intellect and will, knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. It's in those perfections that man excels beyond beast. Okay, so uh, if that's what the image of God is, man is created in knowledge, righteousness, and perfect holiness. Uh, and again, we're talking about man's state of innocence before the fall. Um, if that's what the image of God is, then the image of God is fundamental in distinguishing man for, from animals. Uh, Van Maastricht, uh, Peter Van Maastricht, who uh, wrote this volume, and I will uh, promote this set or what's uh, available of the set so far, which is three volumes. I've read my way through the first two, and I'm almost through this third one here. And uh, he's, he's excellent in every... Uh, in every one of those volumes so far, uh, he gets a little bit more detailed. So what I would like to do in this episode is I would like to look at uh, Peter Van Maastricht's doctrine of the image of God, what the image of God consists in. We're going to look at scripture as well. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll look at the scripture which Maastricht employs, but let's just give an overview of that in which the image of God consists. And uh, again, we're looking at pre-fall, imago Dei, pre-fall, 
or prelapsarian image of God. So image of God distinguishes man from beast, and this is why. Man images God in man's essence. So in the human essence, in his body, in man's body and soul, he images God. Now, you could probably see why man images God in his soul, but why does man image God with regard or with respect to his body? Um, of course, he doesn't image God in his body because God also has a body. We know that God is without body parts and passions. But Van Maastricht says that man's body yet uh, imitates God or images God in its formal perfection, which is eminently in God. So you can think of, of things uh, along teleological lines, uh, fittedness, uh, the uh, the wisdom that is behind the body of man. The reformers thought of man's body as a microcosm of the macrocosmic universe, and so they uh, they would argue that you know there is. Um, proofs for God's existence uh, that are able to be inferred from the makeup of the, the anatomical and biological makeup of man's body. And so in that sense, man's body reflects something of the divine image, uh, even if it's just the wisdom required to uh, create such a body. And then, of course, in soul, uh, man images God in intellect and will. Uh, animals have a will, uh, that is true, but it is a will that is subject to the sensitive passions or the sensitive soul alone. It is not subjected to any sort of higher uh, faculty. Uh, man's will is to be subject to the higher faculty of intellect, which animals do not have. And so in man's essence, what man is, man images God. Um, I kind of already just, uh, you know, gave away the the next one here. But the, the second thing that Van Mastery says is that uh, man images God in the faculties of the soul, intellect, and will, which as we've already covered, animals don't have an intellect. They, have, they do have a, a will that is subject entirely to sensitive passions, uh, which we we would call instinct now, um, but they don't, they don't have a will that's subject to, uh, to the intellect. So man images God in that way, in a very distinct way that animals, uh, do not reflect, uh, do not reflect, uh, God. The third thing that master says is the gifts of intellect, uh, which are, uh, actually says the gifts of intellect, will, and affections, uh, the gift of the intellect would be wisdom. The gift of the will would be holiness. Uh, the gift of the affections would be virtue or the virtues, uh, moral virtues, theological virtues, things like that. Uh, which is another episode on its on its own, and uh, it, which would be very very much worth discussing. The virtues are very important. We've lost the notion of of virtue ethics, and so that would be a very worthy conversation, no doubt. Um, the fourth thing that Van Master says is that uh, from those considerations, you know, man's essence, faculties of the soul, the gifts of intellect, wisdom, holiness, virtue, all of that 
gives rise to original righteousness, or all of that together constitutes original righteousness, Maastricht says. Uh, and, and this is all taking place in, in volume three, page 287. I have a quote uh, from page 287, so that chapter where uh, page 287 is, which I believe is the chapter on man and the image of God. Uh, so, so chapter that chapter on man and the image of God, which is, let me see here, going to be chapter one. No, definitely not going to be chapter one. Let's see here. It's going to be chapter, sorry about this, chapter nine. So chapter nine in volume three is where you can find this if you if you decide to go and pick this volume up and, and read it yourself. Um, the, but Van Maastricht has one more. He has a fifth one. Uh, man images God in immortality, which we know that, you know, from the fall, man loses uh, immortality uh, and is subject to uh, to to death, temporal and eternal death, uh, and so uh, is in need, of course, of restorative grace, which comes through Jesus Christ alone. Okay, so that's kind of the that's the introduction. It kind of it's a scatter shot, and and it's kind of a machine gun fire in terms of what the image of God is made up of. Like, what does it mean to be the image of God? Well, Maastricht would tell you that. Uh, man's essence, what man is, images God, what he is in body and soul, uh, the faculties of the soul, intellect and will, image God in man, uh, the gifts of the intellect, will, and affections, wisdom, holiness, virtue, images God in man. Uh, from all of that arises original righteousness, which of course images God, and then, uh, and then immortality images God as well. And, and by the way, all of that is uh, is is likewise represented in the Second London Confession. So you're you're going to find you're not gonna you're gonna find all of that in summary form in uh, in chapter in chapter let's see you're gonna find it in the chapter on creation chapter four and uh, and then of course throughout you'll find uh, things that allude back to that doctrine of man or that doctrine of the image of God uh, throughout the confession so like chapter 9 of free will uh, even you know uh, of good works um, and and so on so there's there's the confession is an interrelated document it's an intertextual document it is an interwoven document the chapters do not stand on their own uh, there is a weaving of doctrines together. It's very integrated, as it were. Uh, Dr. James Renahan always says, you know, like we need to read the confession, uh, not, you know, vertically uh, from the top down or from the bottom up, but horizontally and kind of see each chapter uh, next to the other. Okay, so that's the introduction, kind of a long-winded introduction. Took me 15 minutes to get through it. But now we can move on to Maastricht on the privation of the image of God. So we're going to look at the image of God following the fall. Here we're going to interact not only with Maastricht, we're going to interact with the confession, we're going to interact with scripture. So if you could fasten your seatbelts, we're going to, we're going to move through this. Um, I'm not going to uh, be in a hurry to move through this. 
but I don't think it's going to take us, you know, I've said this before, and I usually don't try and predict uh, time frames on, on this show. However, it's it's probably going to take us about another 15 minutes or so to move to move through this with any amount of thoroughness, uh, if not longer than that. So um, I want to begin with a, a quote from Maastricht on the image of God, and I think it's very important. Uh, again, he is he is walking the line between two extremes. Uh, I don't want to call it the via media because uh, it's not as if he's you know taking two uh, opposed positions and and performing a synthesis. He's not trying to synthesize uh, you know Pelagianism with um, uh, w- with any sort of you know um, kind of Gnosticism that would see the image of God as totally effaced in man, uh, or something like that. Uh, this is just the biblical position, but uh, historically speaking, it walks the line between two extremes. And uh, and so he says this. Again, this is page 287 of volume 3 of Theoretical Practical Theology by uh, Peter Van Maastricht. Uh, in Fallen Man, the image of God is, Maastricht says, quote, neither completely perished through sin, nor completely survived from sin. Okay, so notice what he does there. He's saying that the image of God in man after the fall is at once neither completely gone, nor is it completely remaining. All right, now, there there is required, after a statement like that, uh, kind of an exposition of what is meant, because the natural question that that, that arises after making a statement like that is, okay, to what extent does the image of God remain in man? And to what extent has the image of God been destroyed in man? All right, that's the, that's the natural question to be asking. I think uh, what, I'll, what I'll do at this point is turn over to Confession 16, paragraph 7. 16, paragraph 7, this is the chapter on good works, and this is the last paragraph. I think this has some information that is helpful in understanding the extent to which the divine image remains in man. So, uh, again, this is Confession 16, paragraph 7, works done by unregenerate man, men, works done by unregenerate men, Although for the matter of them, they may be things which God commands. So these deeds in and of themselves are lawful deeds and of good use both to themselves and others. So they even have good outcomes, right? So these are, these are lawful deeds. So they're good deeds that have good outcomes, right? Yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end, the glory of God. They are therefore sinful and cannot please God, nor make a man meet to receive grace from God, and yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing to God. Now, if you just take that paragraph by itself, you might end up thinking, well, the framers of the confession are positing here a a bald-faced contradiction, because on the one hand, they're saying that these deeds are lawful that the unregenerate men perform. They're lawful. Uh, they're in accord with God's law. Uh, for the matter of them, the confession says they're things that God commands. 
Um, and then they also have good outcomes. Uh, that is, they are of good use both to themselves and to others. But then they turn around and they say these works are sinful. So how can something that seems so good and useful be at once sinful? Uh, now, it's not as if the confession here at this point is saying that these, these works are both good and not good. Rather, what it is saying is that in terms of the work itself, it's a lawful deed. It is a deed that is commanded by God. And so as to its external significance, it is in fact lawful and good and thus results in good, usually natural outcomes. Um, and so to that extent, the, these, these deeds are, are good deeds in that qualified sense. Then how can it turn around and say they are at once sinful? How are they sinful deeds? Well, they're not sinful deeds in the, in the sense that the deeds themselves are wicked, but that unregenerate man performing things that God commands apart from faith in God are yet a means that God uses to aggravate the sinfulness of the one who performs them. And so it's it's like hot coals are being heaped upon these people who show that they know the law of God. They, they show that they even know how to, 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 to do some good things that God commands, and yet they reject God. In that sense, they are sinful. They result in an aggravation of that person's condemnation. Okay, so that's paragraph seven. There's something here that informs our idea or our conception of the image of God after the fall. In other words, according to paragraph seven of chapter 16 in the Second London Confession, the image of God can't be totally effaced, can't be totally destroyed. Why? Because there's still something of civil goodness coming from unregenerate man. Uh, and so that's a testimony to the remaining presence uh, of the image of God in even unregenerate persons. Okay, so let's let's turn over now to, to chapter 9. Let's look at chapter 9 which is of free will, and we'll look at paragraphs 2 and 3. This, these will also have something to contribute to the discussion on the image of God following the fall. So paragraph 2 of chapter 9 deals with man's state of innocency, that is, before the fall. It says, man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God but yet was mutable so that he might fall from it. In other words, what the confession is saying is that man had the ability prior to the fall to fulfill the covenant of works in which he was uh, placed uh, by God, uh, the covenant of works which was imposed upon man by God. Uh, it, it, here it is, it is being said that, that man in his state of innocency prior to the fall had the ability to do that. Now, what does paragraph 3 say? Paragraph 3 addresses uh, man's state of misery, so moving from his state of innocency to his state of misery following the fall. Paragraph 3, man by his fall into his, a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good. Notice, notice the adjective, spiritual good. All right, so whereas in, in chapter 16, article 7, 
there is some good use that results from uh, from man's unregenerate men doing what God commands. So there's some form of goodness there. Theologians have in the past called that civil goodness rather than redemptive goodness. Um, but here in paragraph three, there's a qualification added that helps us understand what exactly man lost in the fall with regard to the image. Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So there are two modifiers concerning the word good there. Number one, it's spiritual good. Number two, it is spiritual good accompanying salvation or having to do with redemption. So we would call it redemptive good. While man may do civilly good things, things that are objectively good in in the sense that it's what God has commanded and it, it bears a semblance to the law of God, at least externally, man has lost all ability to please God or to will any spiritually good works with any sort of redemptive significance. In other words, man has broken the covenant of works. No longer can man come before God through the covenant of works. He's a sinner. He's a covenant breaker. All right. So he, he has no, uh, no capacity uh, or power to do that which God wills unto his salvation. Uh, and he cannot have proper good works because he does not do them, will not do them unto the glory of God from a heart that's been changed by the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ to love God and love neighbor. Okay, that was a mouthful. So now what I want to do after after looking at that and kind of letting some historical literature inform the our our understanding of the privation of the image of God, um, let's do this. Let's look at where the image of God remains specifically and where it perishes specifically. Again, this is something that, that, um, that Van Maastricht does. I think it's very helpful and, uh, I'll, I'll check to make sure I have it right in terms of where he, in terms of where he does it. He does it in, let's see, where he walks through. Let's see. Yeah, he does it in, I think he does it in, on page 291, the extent to which the image of God remains and the extent to which it was lost. That's page 291 of volume three. Okay, so he gives four areas, four considerations uh, where the image of God remains and then four considerations of where the image of God has perished in fallen man. So first, it remains in, number one, the continual existence of man's nature, that man continues to be a body and a soul composite, and thus in that capacity images God. As we spoke of before, one of the ways that man images God is in his essence. That is what man is, and what man is is body and soul. And unless you want to say that man has ceased being body and soul, <laughs> which we know that's not true, uh, then, then, we, then we have to admit some remnant of the image of God in man. Okay, so uh, that's really a 
that's a pretty self-explanatory, self-evident one. We don't really have to go through any length to 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 prove that. Um, number two, the image of God remains in the natural faculties of the soul, intellect, and will. Now, let me qualify this. Are the intellect and will corrupted? Yes. Do the intellect and will yet remain? <laughs> yes. Okay, so it, it's it's not a black and white uh, consideration because y- you can't really you can't really say okay what's good in man's intellect and what's bad you know you you can't walk through that um, with any modicum of of accuracy but what you can say is that yes man's intellect and will have been deeply affected by the fall by the entrance of sin into the world through Adam, yet the intellect and will remain. And probably the the, the easiest way to, you know, uh, demonstrate the fact that the intellect and will remain would be in the pre-conversion apprehension of one's condemnation. All right. If the intellect and will uh, did not remain in man, and if they could do no good whatsoever, if there was no hint of image of God in in man's natural faculties any longer, uh, then man could not even discern his condemnation uh, as a result of his shortfallenness uh, from the law of God. Uh, but we do know that man perceives his fallenness. Uh, because he has to perceive his fallenness if he's going to sense any kind of need for grace, all right? And uh, I, I recently uh, uh, taught a lesson at a conference, a lecture at a conference that was titled The Apologetic Use of Law and Gospel. And one of the things that I wanted to point out, and the main, really the mega theme of that message was the fact that natural or moral law brings man to a precipice where there is either hope or there is hopelessness. And uh, he's not going to perceive that hope through the natural world. It has to be preached to him, or he has to read it in the pages of Scripture. That hope is in Christ alone. Otherwise, there's hopelessness because he's only condemned. Uh, But you see, in order for man to perceive the need for a Savior, he has to cognitively apprehend what is right and what is wrong. And so, you know, like Calvin and, you know, all the first generation reformers, the post-reformed, it's, it's of unanimous, uh, it's of unanimous um, affirmation within reformed orthodoxy uh, that, that man is yet able to discern between good and evil. Uh, We'll get to why that's the case here in a moment. We'll interact with with scripture here on our third point, but it's important to, to note that the intellect and will remain in man, and yet they are still able to apprehend, the intellect is yet able to apprehend something of the truth, and and we know from scripture that unbelievers do uh, what is right sometimes, uh, not what is spiritually right, right, but that which might be uh, conducive to society. Uh, might be conducive to the household, the polis, uh, or the city, the workplace, and so on. And so there's there's something of the image of God remaining in the natural faculties of the soul. That's the second thing. The, the third thing is 
there's something of the image of God remaining in certain gifts, Maastricht says, certain gifts of the intellect and will. So there's remaining reason. Some he even he even goes so far as to say there's some propensity toward natural good. There's some propensity toward good, even he says natural moral good. Uh, again, this is page 291 of Volume 3 of Theoretical Practical Theology, and I, I find this to be totally in line with Reformed Orthodoxy on this point, that there, that there is some propensity, uh, some desire that man still has for natural good. It's not good that can, that can result in his redemption. It's not good that pleases God. Um, you know, I, Isaiah 67 is pretty clear that while man has righteousness, it is yet considered in the eyes of God, by way of comparison, filthy rags. So, um, so I think it's I think it's proper to say, and I think it's evident that there's obviously reason remaining in man uh, for the reasons we discussed with regard to the intellect. Man wouldn't be able to discern good from bad if there were were no was no reason wouldn't be able to employ the laws of logic wouldn't be able to think analytically wouldn't be able to do or participate in any of the natural sciences wouldn't be able to um, infer anything uh, you know so there's there's reason some propensity toward natural good but not redemptive good uh, you know scripturally I, I think this is pretty clear if you look at uh, Romans chapter 2 verse 15. In Romans chapter 2, really verses 14 and 15, it says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law. So these are Gentiles who are not part of the Israelite covenant community. So they didn't receive the law at Mount Sinai. Um, So when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law. Paul is saying that they, by nature, do the things in the law. Do they always do the things in the law? Well, of course not, but do they do the things in the law? Yes. He's issuing a, a descriptive statement here. When they, by nature, do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, formally so-called, that is, they didn't receive it at Sinai, are a law unto themselves, or a law to themselves. And that's in the indicative. Um, so this is this is a description of the Gentiles or of the heathen from the pen of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, this is a, a verse that Maastricht uh, interacts with, um, or at least he cites within this context. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And this is why Calvin had no problem saying, yeah, the unregenerate man still has the capacity to discern good from evil, and there's some remaining propensity toward good. Um, And the reason we can say there's some remaining propensity toward good is you have Paul here saying that they do things in the law. Things in the law are good. They're they're good deeds objectively. Now, they may be, you know, coming from a, a person who has ill intent, uh, their heart's not right before God and all of that, but is the deed itself objectively good? You have to say yes, unless you're a subjectivist and the the virtue or the ethics of deeds change based on the subjective status of the subject performing them. 
So yeah, the the deed is objectively is objectively good. So there's some propensity to do that good in the heathen, or else they wouldn't perform it at all. And of course, you know, we could attribute that to God's common grace, to uh, God's providential restraining of how evil ma man could be, right? So there's there's a kind providence aspect behind the scenes here, but that providence uh, operates through uh, natures right? Uh, so human nature in this case, and, and God is directing, disposing, governing, and, and, um, and, and guiding uh, human nature. All, all, all men and their natures, respectively, are being providentially disposed and sustained, all right? So I think that's important. That's an important consideration. Uh, we can, we can move over to 1 Corinthians uh, 15, or uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And, you know, here here you have professing Christians behaving worse than the heathen. And so there's at least a level of virtue in the heathen that surpasses the the amount of virtue that's in the Corinthian church. So in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And so what Paul's doing there is, is, is implying that the Gentiles, the heathen, have at least some moral restraint. Uh, and, and that's kind of a negative way of putting it. A positive way of putting it is to say that there's some remaining virtue there that motivates that restraint, uh, which God in his providence sustains, upholds, you know, directs and disposes. Okay, um, so that's the third thing. So there are certain gifts of the intellect and will that remain in even unregenerate men. They remain after the fall. Um, and then fourthly, he says there are remnants of original dominion. This is an incredibly important issue. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a vast issue because you have a lot of discussion today along the lines of eschatology and Christian nationalism and so on about taking dominion. And I think it's important to see, you know, kind of something of the Reformed Orthodox view in Maastricht regarding dominion. Uh, for the Reformed, they, you know, we lost the capacity to take dominion to the extent necessary in order to fulfill the original covenantal and creational mandate uh, so we, we lost the capacity to do that to the extent required. Uh, and so there's no way we can like try and, 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 and shift gears here, uh, trying to, to take dominion, uh, to the extent we would need to take dominion because we've lost the capacity to do that. And even if you say, well, no, in the New Covenant, we, we have the capacity to do that restored by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, uh, you would still run into issues because 1 John tells us there, there is yet sin. And so, again, we can't even take dominion of our own bodies or thoughts to the extent we need to. Uh, and so there's just no way to, to, to meet that dominion mandate. And, and I think the Reformers understood that, and the post-Reformed under, understood that as well. Uh, but nevertheless, there's yet remnants of man's tendency toward dominion. Uh, you look at a city skyline, and you realize 
there's no one else doing this. There's nothing else doing this. Only man is building skyscrapers and and creating new inventions and and innovating uh, ways to fly into outer space and you know the cell phone and trying to improve communications and boosting you know economy through the private sector and starting businesses and so on. You don't nobody else does that, right? Only men do that. So there's some remnant of dominion farming agriculture the fact that we go you know into thousand two thousand twenty thousand acre plots of land uh, and we cultivate them in order to produce food shows you that there's still some remnants of original dominion uh, in man and and thus there is there is a remaining aspect of the image of God in Genesis 7 2 uh, we read, you shall take with you seven, you know, and this is after the fall. This is uh, before the flood and, and God is instructing Moses, or not Moses, Noah. Uh, he says, you shall take with you seven, each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, and so on. And the idea there, and the reason Maastricht cites this text is, you know, man couldn't do that unless there was some you know, a remaining ability to, to take dominion. And, and so there's, there's something of that revealed in the, in the, not only the construction of the ark, but uh, of the marshalling of the animals and so on. Okay. So it remains in those four areas. The image of God remains in man's nature, in natural faculties, intellect and will, uh, faculties of the soul, uh, it remains in certain gifts of the intellect and will, reason, some propensity toward natural good, even moral good. We looked at Romans 2.15 and 1 Corinthians 5 for that. Uh, and then fourthly, it remains in remnants of original dominion, Maastricht says. So those are the four places where the image of God remains in man. There are four places where the image of God perishes in man as well. And so let's look at those. Uh, the image of God perishes in man most obviously in original righteousness. So following the fall, man is no longer righteous. Uh, he's no longer righteous in the sense that he is no longer a, um, uh, a sufficiently moral, holy, or just uh, subject of the heavenly throne, to put it, to put it poetically. Um, man no longer has a righteousness that pleases God. The righteousness with which he was created, uh, he no longer possesses. And so, of course, this gives rise for Genesis 3.15, the introduction of a serpent-crushing seed of the woman, uh, man becomes desperate for someone else to come and stand in his place. Why? Because man, it boils down to man no longer has original righteousness. Man is born children, a child of wrath. He's dead in his sins. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 makes this very plain. Man is dead in the sense that man no longer has original righteousness and is thus no longer pleasing before God. Uh, so uh, I don't think we have to 
again, we don't really have to go to any length to prove that. Man's original righteousness is gone. And this is what gives rise to the need for the gospel. Man depends now on the righteousness of another. Secondly, man has lost the image of God in the loss of immortality. This is most evidently, of course, seen in the death of the body. Of course, we know that even the souls of the damned continue. uh, And so in that sense, they are immortal, yet they are subject to everlasting damnation and judgment, eternal conscious torment. Uh, And so that is worse than physical death, and so is referred to oftentimes as eternal death of the soul. Um, Man doesn't stop existing. Even unregenerate man doesn't stop existing at death. Uh, Annihilationism is a fantasy. Uh, His soul goes on to continue to exist. Um, But man loses immortality in a general sense. That is, he must now die. God says. And of course, in terms of the soul, we realize that as a, an, an eternal conscious death of punishment, which is worse than anything resembling physical death. But of course, it also entails the death of the body. So, whereas man would have lived forever if he obeyed God, if he would have maintained his original righteousness, uh, he, he instead receives the curse, which is death, so he loses immortality. This occurs in Genesis 3 and is affirmed throughout the gospel accounts and so on. Uh, The third way in which man has lost the image of God or the third aspect of the image which has perished in man is man has lost his perfection of dominion, which we, we spoke about already. But I would just turn your attention to Romans 8 verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So the whole creation has been subjected to futility. This is a text that Maastricht references to show that, um, you know, if creation is subjected to futility, then how are we going to take dominion of it? If creation is subjected to emptiness, moral and otherwise, the effects of sin and so on. How are we going to take dominion of it to the extent we would have in the state of innocence? So, you know, that aspect of the image of God has perished in the fall. Uh, and then, of course, uh, blessedness. Man has has lost, you know, utter pleasure and beatitude, which, of course, is restored in Christ. But if we're just looking at natural man, what has man lost after the fall he has lost that beatitude. Mastery says he's lost the happiness of paradise. And so, uh, of course, this is depicted in the fact that Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. There were cherubim put in front of the gate to guard it so that they couldn't re-enter. And, uh, and, and thus now the stage is set in Genesis 3 for there to be someone who would come and bring man back who would be worthy enough to come and bring man back into the garden and thus return man to uh, the beatitude of paradise or the beatitude of glory, uh, which will be even better than, than it was in the garden because it'll be brought by Christ. So the image of God perished in the fact that man lost original righteousness. He lost immortality. He lost the perfection of dominion. He lost the happiness of paradise. 
The image of God remains in man, in man's nature, body and soul, in the natural faculties of the soul, intellect and will, in certain gifts of the intellect and will, remaining reasons, some propensity toward good and moral good even, Romans 2.15, 1 Corinthians 5.1. And then fourthly, uh, it remains in remnants of original dominion, tatters of original dominion, uh, but nevertheless, they're there, remnants of it. Uh, Guys, hopefully this was helpful just to kind of summarize here uh, this is an incredibly important discussion um, it's an it's an incredibly important and pastoral consideration what of the image of God remains in man after the fall uh, and in some ways in many ways it sets us up to see where we're going in Christ and to increase our hope all the more because we realize that even though we were in Christ as Christians, yet the image of God remains corrupted. It's it's imperfect, and it will be perfected upon the consummation at the resurrection. So, hopefully this was helpful. If it was, please share the episode. Uh, again, don't forget to click the subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications. Really, check out Theoretical Practical Theology by... Peter Van Maastricht. It's published by Reformation Heritage Books. So go and get your copy. Read the first two first. Don't jump right into volume three. Please go read the first two, especially the first one, which which really introduces you to his method. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.